the judicial officer shall set money bail only after he determines that no other conditions will reasonably ensure the appearance of the defendant in court. If it is determined that money bail should be set, the judicial officer shall require one of the following, the execution of an unsecured bond, the execution of an unsecured bond in, a, in an amount specified by the judicial officer accompanied by a deposit of cash or securities of 10%, the execution of a bond secured by the deposit of the full amount in cash, property, whatever. In setting the amount of bail, the judicial officer shall take into account all facts relevant to the risk of willful non-appearance, including the length and character of the defendant's residence in the community, his employment status, history and financial condition, family ties and relationship, his reputation, character and mental condition, his past history of response to legal process, his prior criminal history and record the identity of responsible members of the community who vouch for the defendant's reliability, the nature of the current charge, the apparent probability of conviction, and the likely sentence, any other factors indicating the defendant's roots in the community. And so that's what's supposed to happen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to part two of our episode, Better to be Rich and Guilty Rather than Poor and Innocent. I'm David. I'm Michelle. And this is Expiration Date. In part one of our episode, we reference an interview with Feronda Brasfield, a local defense attorney. And um, we're really excited to play this interview for you guys. We really learned a lot. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Foronda Brassfield. Um, I work with the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. I'm a local attorney. Got an um, office and practice in Stuttgart, Arkansas, providing services to um, a rural area in the state. Rural areas in Arkansas are traditionally underserved. And so that's where my business is. As far as community um, and civic engagement, social justice. I think of myself as kind of like a connector. I know people and I know some people, I know people that are doing the work. And so um, I try to connect people and connect the dots between, you know, all of the good work that people are doing so that we can actually come together and move forward together. I'm on the board of Decarcerate. Um, as I said before, um, I'm with the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. I have worked as their executive director for um, the past five years. I am um, on the board of the Citizens First Congress, which is a um, grassroots organization that works to organize rural communities and help rural folks to um, to organize themselves and um, whatever their policy agendas are, and then to advocate for those things um, at the legislative level. The, the racial disparities in the Arkansas criminal justice system steering committee, I'm a member of that steering committee, and what that is is it's basically a, um, an organization or a steering committee that came together to figure out, um, um, we always have thought that in Arkansas, African-Americans are treated um, disparately in the criminal justice system and treated much more harshly than their white counterparts. But there was no way to 
um, to measure that. Yeah. Um, there was no data. You know, that's a problem that we have in Arkansas. We don't we don't keep the data. We just do whatever we want to do and we don't keep a record of it. So who can prove it? And so this steering committee came together to um, basically get some data on um, how blacks and whites are treated in the criminal justice system. And once we um, once we gathered that data, our, our conclusion was clear that African-Americans are treated much more harshly at every single level of the criminal justice system, um, whether it be um, arrest rates or um, charging or sentencing. Um, African-Americans are treated um, much more harshly than their white counterparts, and it kind of culminated in the um, the death penalty, where we found that African-Americans that were charged with capital murder were Two to, over two times more likely to receive the death penalty versus their white counterpart that was charged with capital murder. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we presented that data to um, judges um, across the state, to prosecutors across the state, and we have been successful in getting a jury instruction that um, instructs juries on implicit racial bias and how we all hold those implicit racial biases. But if you're going to be on a jury, then you've got to learn and know how to set those biases aside and look at this person just as you would any other person and give them a sentence that's appropriate. So that's some of the work that I'm doing. I'm doing work with 501 Votes, which is a it is a, a group of churches that have come together, Black churches that have come together to educate their congregants on the issues, um, the ballot initiatives, how to early vote and how things have changed um, living in um, this global pandemic that we're experiencing now. So um, I'm doing some of that work as well. You sound extremely busy. <laughs> I've, I've been pretty busy. I have been. Uh-huh. I want to ask you about the the steering committee. Have you have have you been able to to train or to 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 talk to any juries yet? So we have done. This is an individual jury instruction that should be administered by individual attorneys during their trials, to so that they but so that they can um, instruct the juries in that regard. So it's not something where we come in and do a training with the juries, but that jury instruction is now available and accepted by judges throughout the state um, as something that they can provide to the juries to talk about implicit racial bias because there was not an approved jury instruction. Previously, um, we are also with that program working on a center, a center that will be housed at the William H. Bowen School of Law and um, we hope to start with providing a toolkit to attorneys, some other like um, bows or weapons in their arsenal so that they can uh, they can talk about jury selection. They can um, bats and challenges and have motions ready to go, um, have standard objections ready to go so that they can make a good record in these instances where African-Americans are being excluded, unconstitutionally excluded from juries. How'd you get into all this? Well, how did I get into all of this? I'm probably nosy and um, just got my nose all over the place. I've, I've always been concerned about injustice and I think I just, seem to keep finding my tribe, you know, people that will, can see the injustice and are not comfortable to just see it and not do, or not try to do anything about it. So I think that's 
kind of how I got involved. And I can't get out now. I'm in, I'm in too deep. In too deep. In too deep. <laughs> okay, so tell us about like what work you do. You know, I have a um, small town practice, and so I do a variety of things. I do some criminal law, and I do some family law. I do a little bit of civil. I've done workers' comp. I've done um, um, just uh, pro some probate work. But the things that bother me the most in my practice, you know, family law is pretty standard. You know, um, there's not typically a bias that's there, but there is a um, in the criminal law. I see all the time, you know, the, the criminal justice system is just so fundamentally broken. Um, it presupposes that a person is guilty. You know, if you if you come into the criminal justice system, you're going to be treated as if you have been convicted of whatever you're accused of. You're going to go to jail. You're going to not be able to go to work. You're going to have to pay money to get out of jail. And um, if you don't have money, then you need to, you know, get comfortable because you're going to stay in jail. As I work more and more in it, it's, it's just so fundamentally broken and um, it's almost an injustice system. Lately, I've, I've had a um, uptick in cases of um, black males that are getting these marijuana possession charges, like they had a half of a joint or whatever, you know, and that even though it's legal for medicinal use in this in this state, um, that can garner you a year probation, um, a suspension on your driver's license and a $1,500 fine. Like that's crazy. That is absurd. And so, um, and, and it's, and it could escalate from that. You know, you've got a piece of a joint and a gun. Now you are subject to a felony, a class Y felony. It's just crazy. And, you know, our laws just don't um, uniformly. A lot of them don't make a lot of sense. And so that that's some of what I see in my work and some of the things that we're working to to try to get some some reforms on um, decarcerate. The decarcerate campaign is working on a project curb bails, bail fines and fees, and um, it just comes from the same premise of you know we shouldn't be treating we shouldn't be treating people as if they are criminals or guilty when they first come in contact with the criminal justice system, and then it shouldn't be a situation that um, justice means if you can pay or if you cannot pay. Um, that's what it boils down to. So um, that project is working to um, to do a number of things. But one of the first things is to have judges apply the law as it's written, because the law says, you know, bail is only supposed to be imposed at, as a last resort. If, if nothing else will assure that this person will come to court. But everybody knows, I mean, when you go to court, it's just I mean, that's the automatic thing we do before we don't ask about factors. It's just um, we pretty much set a bail and not having a bail has become the um, the exception or, or the, the exception rather than the rule as it's supposed to be. Well, and I think that's one thing I discovered when I was doing research on this topic is that I was not aware until I started researching this two years ago that people were held in jail because they couldn't pay before they were convicted of a crime. Sometimes years that people who have a casual relationship with like politics and the news and the criminal justice system, they just don't know, don't really know that. And it's, it's that the whole system that you can even 
buy your way out is so crazy to me. Could you briefly explain to our listeners kind of what does it look like when you get involved with a client? Like if somebody gets arrested, when 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 do you get involved? Okay, so there there are a few different ways that that can play out. And it's um, initially it's at the discretion of the officer. The officer can choose to write a citation and let this person go on their way. The officer can choose to arrest the individual, tow their car, send their kids to have DHS pick them up or maybe call a, a family member. Um, it's, it's at the discretion of the officer. So depending on how they feel that day, um, you could either go to jail or you could ride off with the ticket to come back to court. Um, if you go to jail that day, then you're going to go down, you're going to be booked in, you're going to be fingerprinted, you're going to have your picture taken, you're going to be put in um, a holding cell. And depending um, at that time, you'll probably be waiting, staying overnight to see a judge in the morning. And um, when you see that judge and the judge is going to um, assess your situation and probably set you a bail and you would need to that's a a bail is an amount of money that you need to pay in order to be released from jail now uh, let's say a typical bail is five five thousand dollars if you get a five thousand dollar bail then you've got to either pay five thousand dollars to the court um, until all of this and that's going to sit there until all of this is over or you can get a bails bondsman and a bails bondsman typically charged you um, what 10 12 percent after processing fees so you you would pay 500 maybe 550 something like that to get out of jail now that money that you give the bails bondsman you will never get it back mm-hmm. um, so initially you've already paid 500 dollars on an allegation that could or could not be true mm-hmm. um, this time Um, If you are um, smart and you have the means, you're going to find an attorney. If it is a felony charge, then you um, or something that you could lose your liberty, then you can get a public defender. You are um, entitled to um, a public defender. So you can go that route or you would need to hire a private attorney. Um, And when you go into hire a private attorney, you would need to pay additional money to that attorney that you will never get back. And um, work with them to um, try to put up some sort of defense. And so you have probably spent um, or a, a day off of your job. So you're down a day's wages, you're out of $500 and you're out of whatever fee you've had to pay the attorney. And that's all money that you will, um, you'll never get back. And that is a probably one of the better ways it can go if you go to jail, because if you don't have $500, then you're just going to sit there mm-hmm. and whatever job you had, hopefully they will hold your job for you, but they're probably not going to pay you for the time that you were in jail. And then your bills are going to continue to accrue while you are not producing or, or making any money. So this thing goes bad really, really quickly. And mm-hmm for people that are living um, paycheck to paycheck um, and especially in a global pandemic, one, even one day off of their jobs um, and then having to pay these additional fees and fines um, already before anything has really gotten started. Um, there's not any litiga- litigation that's began. Um, you can see how it can be devastating to, to families. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a follow-up questions. Are there universal protocol or guidelines that police should follow when they when they do that? You say that there's a lot of discretion in the police officer, but 
Is it designed that way or, or why is it? I believe that it is designed that way. You know, we have a law here in Arkansas that police officers have the discretion where they can arrest you for speeding. I mean, if you are, if you break the law, they can arrest you and take you to jail. So they do have that discretion. They can cite you too. And that's typically what happens. They write you a citation and send you on your way. You've got to come to court to answer to this at some um, future date, but they do have that discretion to arrest um, if someone has broken the law. Is this kind of a universal thing across states and does it apply to sheriff's offices, uh, sheriff's offices as well or what? This uh, this applies to um, any law enforcement officer. The well, the game warden um, is a law enforcement officer. So um, a lot of people don't know that that the game warden is is law enforcement as well. And uh, I know it applies in Arkansas. I'm not sure about every state and and what the laws are, but here in Arkansas, if you break um, any law, including speeding, seatbelt, you can be taken to jail. You mentioned that you can get access to a lawyer for free if you've committed a felony. If it's not a felony, is do you can you still get a public defender or, or a if, counsel? If your liberty is at stake, then you can qualify for a public defender. And the and, and the public defender appointment of the public defender is at the discretion of the judge. And so um, the judge can say, "Hey, you make too much money to get a public defender," or um, or something of that nature, but it is up to the discretion of the judge to appoint the public defender. What does it mean if your liberty is at stake? If you have the potential to go to prison or is it, you know, potential for anything like that? I'm just, you know, just for clarification. Sure. Um, when I say if your liberty is at stake, I mean, if you are subject to um, confinement of any kind, um, if it's jail, time or if it's prison time if you have um if you can be convicted of and and sentenced to that then you are um entitled to representation i guess because i grew up in the 80s i had this idea of this like pristine trial that takes place for everybody um and like you have this lawyer like it's like the like i mean they made us read to kill a mockingbird you think of atticus finch standing up and defending these people and like and one thing that surprised me is that 94 percent of criminal cases in america do not go to trial so where do you where do you get involved in the plea deal is that something that you help negotiate or do people have to do that on their own that is something if i'm representing a client then that is something that i would do with the with the um assistance of my client Mm -hmm. but i don't want my client talking to the prosecutor without me ever um, or the police without me ever. And, um, I would work with them to, um, to first know, you know, what they want. What do you think is an acceptable punishment? Now we can't always get there. Um, some people don't want to be punished at all, but, but trying to find something that is going to be appropriate, more appropriate than, um, most times the, the sentence that is listed in the, in the law or the statute and working with the prosecutor to um, to personalize this individual case and let them know why my client, why there's a deviation from the standard thing that you do, why, why, that, why that is warranted here. So um, that's what most attorneys 
are doing uh, with their clients as far as plea deals, working with the prosecutor to educate them on this particular client's case and um, asking, begging in some instances that the prosecutor will be lenient with your client. One thing that I've found too is that where you said it's the discretion of the officer, it's the discretion of the judge, it's the discretion of the prosecutor, which those roles are overwhelmingly white male. The statistics are unbelievable for elected prosecutors. And so do you find that you as a defense attorney are kind of on the outside of that relationship, that they, that that, those three positions seem to work together to get convictions and don't really, that the goal is, the goal is number of convictions. Do you, do you see that? Or is that something I've kind of picked up on that's not really so I've seen, um, you know, I think that judges are designed to be a neutral fact finder. I think that judges and prosecutors work together every day. And so they are typically more familiar with each other and have um, a different relationship than a, a defense attorney that's just coming in for this one case and is not there every day, five days a week, 12 months a year. There is a relationship there. Um, And I mean, we would be silly to pretend that there wasn't a familiarity with the judge and the prosecutor. But I think that um, for the most part, judges are um, neutral fact finders. But I think, you know, prosecutors and I say this from someone who has worked as a prosecutor before um, the job of a prosecutor is to seek justice. That's the job of a prosecutor. Um, the job of a prosecutor is not to get convictions um, or however many convictions. Let's see how many we can get and prosecute everybody to the full extent of the loss to look at every situation and say, you know, what does justice warrant in this particular case? Um, how do we protect the community? Restoration has to be a part of any um, prosecutorial scheme. Now, that's not always what I see. Often, that is not what I see. I see overzealous prosecutors that want to get a conviction. I see sometimes that the prosecutorial function is delegated to some of the um, youngest attorneys. Many times when I go into court, our prosecutors are, as you said, if not white males, then um, just white people, period. And um, I'm I'm not saying in any way that that um, means that they are bad people or bad prosecutors, but I think that um, there is a disconnect between our prosecutors and the people that they're prosecuting. Um, There is, um, and that's where that implicit racial bias could come into play because maybe you've never grown up with Black people or Hispanics or anybody that did not look like you. Um, Maybe that's the situation. Maybe your ideas of minorities have come from television or music or something like that. If you've never really interacted with people, that could be detrimental to people that are coming in seeking justice. And we've seen the data. I mean, we cannot pretend as if We don't, I mean, we've got data, but we've got humans that are making decisions that bear this data that we have. And so definitely not dogging the prosecutors out, but um, I think that there is um, a lot of work to be done um, with the way that we prosecute crimes in this state, with how punitive we are on our citizens. 
at one point, um, when I first started doing this work, I say 2015, 2016, Arkansas had the fastest growing prison population in the world. And we got, um, that's the data, but we've got people that are making decisions that lead us to this result. And so um, I think there are lots of things to um, consider when we talk about um, prosecuting cases in the state. One thing I wanted to talk a little bit about, too, is America is trying something that has never been done before. This incredible amount of people that we're putting into the criminal legal system is unbelievable, and it's never been done in human history. I mean, we make up 4% of the world's population, and we make up 25% of the world's prisoners. I'm going to quote Tom Cotton and see what you think. Tom Cotton has repeatedly said that we have an under-incarceration problem in the United States, and he promises to bring law and order back to the state and back to the country. And that's that scares me. Now that I've looked at what this system actually is and what it, the violence that it perpetuates against people, how does, that, how does that make you feel? First, let's address the Tom Cotton issue. It's very ironic, even his name. The policies that he gets behind saying that discussing slavery and discussing the atrocities that have been committed against African-Americans since we arrived on this, on this continent, saying that educating people about that is unpatriotic, he is ridiculous. And, I, and it, it, this is just like a common theme, um, and I, it's probably not what you asked me, and I hope not to go on a tangent, but um, this is a common theme, um, the ridiculousness of, of it all from the top down, you know, um, and when I go to court sometimes, the ridiculousness of it all. The reason that we are here is monetary. We live in a capitalistic society and unfortunately we have come to the point where punishing our citizens, it's, it's, it generates revenue for whatever. And Historically, that has um, African-Americans, people of color, have borne the brunt of that. I think that Tom Cotton and a lot of what he says is just, it's unfortunate. That's the representation that the world sees for our state. That is, um, that's unfortunate. I think it's embarrassing um, and has been on a number of occasions. I think we could just go down the list. Um, I served as a legal observer for a group of protesters that um, protested when Tom Cotton and William Barr came to Little Rock, Arkansas. And th those individuals, their um, security staff, pull guns on peaceful protesters, um, assault rifles. So that just has been par for the course. We have to have new leadership. We cannot have people that incite racist, racism and racist beliefs and and, rep and we can have those types of people representing us. If Tom Cotton thinks that we have an under-incarceration problem, then, and he also thinks that talking about slavery is unpatriotic and should be banned from schools, I think that we, as Arkansans, we have to really evaluate how did he get there and why is he still there.
one of the things that people don't know that they don't know is that bail is supposed to be in extenuating circumstances only. I think that um, we have just um, accepted that bail is something that happens. If you go to jail, then you're going to have a bail and that's automatic. But that is absolutely not the way that the law is written. It's contrary to the law, to the way that the law is written. And I think that most people don't know that because of the practice. Um, you think that the practice is the way it's supposed to go. Bail should only be set if there is nothing else that could ensure that this person is, is going to come back to court to answer for this crime. And some of the things that the law says that could ensure that the person is going to come back are things like, are they working in the community? Do they have a job? Um, that's pretty much if a person has a job and a home and a family um, and children in the community, then they are probably not going to just run away from their life. Um, rather than answer to this, um, this whatever the crime is, the seriousness of the crime is something that should be considered. Their ability to pay, if a um, if a bail is going to be set, if you figure, if the judge says, well, I just don't think that you're going to come back to court because you don't even live in this county, you don't even, I mean, you don't have any family here, we don't think that you're going to come back, so we've got to set a bail but um, what is your income? Then now that's supposed to be the next thing. What is your income? What in, And a bail is supposed to be set based upon a person's ability to pay. That almost never happens. Mm. It's just a standard. It's, and it's usually tied to the crime. You know, most judges have, if you've committed this crime, then, you know, I'm, I usually set a bail between this range. You know, that has absolutely nothing to do. I mean, if you typically set a $50,000 bail and I don't have, $5,000 or or $2,000 in the bank, that's more of a, I'm punishing you because you don't have any money thing, rather than um, I'm trying to ensure if you, that you will come back to court. And that's at the discretion of the judge, is that correct? It is. hope you guys enjoyed that interview. It's so helpful to hear from people who are actually working in the field and can bring some, you know, authenticity to what we're saying. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to us by email at expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our Patreon page, patreon slash expiration date. We ask that you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us. And if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Join us next time where we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.